Hi, this is Bill Cumby. I'm a teacher at First Church Ministries in Newport News, Virginia, and we are going through the book of Genesis. Um, started it uh, in the spring, about May, I think, of uh, last year, and heading on now, and hopefully it'll finish by May of this coming year, <laughs> uh, of this year, excuse me. Um, and as you see here on the splash screen, uh, 27 is really the key verse here. God, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And, and really the essence of Genesis is tied up in that verse, the, the whole point that God, um, being self-sufficient in and of himself in, in Trinity, yet chose to make um, creatures that could interact with him and could love him and that he could love. And, uh, and he made them in his image. And so we uniquely have the capacity to commune with God. And so that, that's what Genesis is talking about. And if you look at the, at the beginning of it, it was given to, Genesis was given to the Israelites in Mount Sinai. Um, uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, was given to um, uh, the Israelites in Mount Sinai. Um, Genesis is not attested uh, to by being written by Moses, but tradition has had that. Uh, that comes under attack, and we'll talk about that in a bit in, in this study. Um, but really, uh, there's ample attestation that this is a, a historically accurate account, that it conforms with, with what uh, the historical events as we know them. Uh, and, and, and that's important because the Bible is rooted in history. It purports to tell the truth about how the earth was created, about, uh, about a flood, about how the Israelites got to be in Egypt and left Egypt. And those events are, are orchestrated by God for a certain reason. And so uh, scripture, um, um, uh, the Judeo-Christian scriptures are unique among other uh, religious scriptures in that they, they are historically rooted. They, they give history and they purport to be accurate history, and they've shown to be accurate history. And so that's very important. We are going to discuss that a little today in this section. Um, there's a prologue there that talks about... Um, about creation, uh, chapter one up through verses two, three, um, chapter two, verse three, uh, it talks about how the earth was created. And again, um, it, it comes under a lot of fire as not being scientific and, and the Big Bang is the current theory among scientists, things have rained over times and, 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 uh, and uh, but it, mark, it matches up more, um, it, not only more, it matches up well, very well, with what science said, thinks it, it, how the universe was created and how the earth was formed. And so, um, again, no other creation stories like that. I, I have to dwell on that a bit because there's a lot of information going on. You can't trust the Bible. It was made up. There's lots of errors on there and stuff like that. And, and that's really not true. And you get that in the pop, popular press, and it, it really undermines the authoritative teaching of the Bible. And so when we don't like something in it, we just say, well, that was added. You know, and so basically right now, the, the current line is almost everything was added. You know, none of it is it's just just be good people is basically what comes out. And it's like, no, that's not what Scripture talks about. Scripture talks about a creation that God made that has certain requirements and rules that, that if we want to be happy, we live within the framework of the creation of God. And it's not just a physical creation, but it's a moral, ethical creation, too. And so, yes, there are things that in the universe, that if you do the wrong morally or ethically, there's a consequence for that. And just like there are, like if you walk off a 10-story roof of a 10-story building, there's a consequence to that. There's a consequence to disobeying the moral, ethical, religious laws too in there. So 
Um, we get the uh, story, the history of the world, God's chosen people. Uh, and I was talking with Jose. We get together uh, beforehand and enjoy uh, a nice breakfast together and talk about things. And I was just, we were just saying, this is an historical document that is unparalleled again uh, of a story of a people and accurate that talks about what happened in there. So I'm excited about Genesis. I'm learning a lot. Uh, the other nice thing about Genesis is it deals with real people. Uh, in fact, if, if, if you want, they talk about these are the generations of, you know, thing, but really I've reworded that to this is the story of, because that's what, when they say these are the generations of Adam and Eve, um, this is the story of Adam and Eve, um, story of God destroying evil, preserving Noah, story of the earth. That's, that's what they're talking about there. So, so for number three, I would say this is the generations of Noah. But really, it's, it's, it's talking about the story of God destroying evil, but preserving Noah and his family. And so these documents would be something that the Israelites would look at as their family history, their family tree. Interestingly enough, um, family trees tend to get edited a bit more than they do in Genesis. Here you get some pretty, some stories, some pretty raw and some pretty hard stories. And one of them is we, we dealt with a, a couple times ago was Lot. Uh, and how Lot eventually drifted into a um, into a situation where everyone was basically evil and immoral, and he conformed to that. And uh, even though there was a problem there, and even though he was saved, and even later Peter calls him a righteous man, that his actions were not righteous, and what he did, and and uh, Peter explains that by him being vexed every day while he was there, and yet being conformed into the world instead of being transformed um, in, in defense to, to Lot, um, uh, as opposed to what we know now, uh, we have the Holy Spirit in us, dwelling in us to help us change. Uh, and so we have extra strength and power to do it. But the truth is, all of us are fallen creatures. We sin. Um, and, and part of scripture, and reason some of these things are in there, is to help us understand that we're not better than other people. In fact, God was very adamant on that when he teaches in the Pentateuch. I did not choose you because you were the greatest of nations, because you were, were one of the smallest and you were the most stubborn and stiff-necked of people, he would, he would say. And yet he loved them. And so God loves us in spite of these problems, but he longs to change us, to help us not have these issues too. And so we, we get into um, uh, Genesis 22 that we covered last time. And we talked about um, God telling Abraham to sacrifice his only son. Uh, and again, Abraham had two sons, but this was the son of the promise, son of Isaac through uh, Sarah. And, um, and the Bible never advocates human sacrifice. In fact, it, in fact, one of the reasons the Canaanites are destroyed are because of that, because they sacrificed their children to, uh, to Moloch. But... Um, here we have God this one time telling him to do that as a, and really this is a preface and a foreshadowing of what God will one day do for us with Christ. And so we get that story here. The other thing that, that uh, we covered, and I just want to make sure we circle back on this, that we understand this is God will always take what we love and tell us to sacrifice it if he thinks it's above him. Okay, If we love what that is more than him, he will say, sacrifice it. And, uh, and he, he held Abraham's hand back from that. But sometimes the sacrifice is not a person, but it's 
something that he wants us to give up forever. Um, but if he does, it's only because he has something better behind that. And that better is actually a relationship with him. And, uh, and which I'm just saying, I, I'm 62 now, and I still struggle in these areas. There's still things God brings up and say, do you love, you know, like he said to Peter, Peter, do you love me uh, more than these? And it's like, so it's like, Bill, do you love me more than this? And there's a struggle there. But that's the exciting part of the journey is that God loves us so much, he won't let us go. He'll keep going and working with us. Um, the sad thing is that we do sin. And, uh, and um, so we pray that the Holy Spirit will strengthen us in these times. So um, I'm going to go on now in the next, you look at the last section, we talked about that, and, and we'll come back to the sacrificial um, uh, motif, the, the, the whole um, fact that God does demand to be God, number one in our lives, and none other in our lives but him. So uh, Genesis, the end of Genesis 22 actually includes this passage in, in verse 20. Really, if the chapter probably should have been ended at that point at the end of the sacrifice of, of Isaac. Um, but it picks up here, and, and this is really where the story picks up again for us. So uh, sometime later, Abraham was told Milcah also has a mother, is also a mother. She has born sons to your brother Nahor. Now, uh, there was Nahor and, uh, and Lot's father, whose name escapes me right now. Um, but, and then there was Abram, or the three or children of uh, sons of Terah. And so this is, uh, again, his, um, his um, brother, and it would, uh, Uz the firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Keset, Hazel, Pildash, Jilpah, and Bethuel. And Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. And that's where the story is going to pick up in this thing is, is Rebekah. Uh, Milcah bore these eight sons to Abram's brother Nahor. And his concubine, whose name was Rumah, also had sons Teba, Gama, Tahash, and Makah. And again, uh, the scripture purports to be historically accurate that they've got these names, that there were these children that actually existed. And part of the reasons are in there uh, is, to, is to preserve the memory of them, but it's also for us something we can check against. And so sometimes you, so, so we, for example, we don't know that there were sons, Teba, Gema, Tehash, and Makah, but we do find in archaeologists and stuff, we'll find certain events that do corroborate things in scriptures. Um, and, and you can't really prove a negative just because you couldn't find that there was historical evidence that Makah was, was a, was born at that time doesn't mean I mean there's lots that has been lost through history and, and so we're going to talk about that a bit too as we get into this because again this is teaching about Abraham but it's also teaching about the credibility of scripture and why we can rely on the stories that are in there to be accurate stories that teach us about God uh, and about ourselves so Sarah lived to be 127 years old um, she died at Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose uh, from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site so I can, so I can here bury my dead. And the Hittites replied to Abram, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. There's a very high esteem Abram's held in. 
And then Abram rose and bowed down before the people of the land, uh, the Hittites. And he said to them, if you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf. So he will send me, uh, so he will sell me the cave at Machpelah, which belongs to him at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it for me at the full price as a burial site among you. Ephraim the Hittite was sitting among the people. So they're sitting at the city gates now. The picture is the city gates. And the city gates is where all transactions took place like this. And uh, Abraham needs a place to bury his wife. And, and they have, he's highly honored among them. And they say, wherever you want, just whatever you want, which is a tremendous um, um, declaration. And um, he says, well, ask Ephraim the Hittite to do. Now, Ephraim's sitting there, okay? But this is sort of the Middle Eastern thing to save face to make sure that maybe Ephraim doesn't want to sell him that. And, and, and this is a way of circumlocation of that. And so then um, Ephraim, the, verse 10, Ephraim the Hittite was um, sitting among his people and replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gates of his, of his city. No, my Lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. And again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephraim in the hearing, listen to me, if you will. I will pay the price of the field. Accept it for me so that I can bury my dead there. And Ephraim answered Abraham, listen to me, my Lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. But what is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Um, and Abraham agreed to Ephraim's terms and weighed out for him the price. He named uh, he, he named it the here and the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephraim's field in Machva near Mamre, both uh, the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. And afterwards, Abraham buried, and afterward Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machva near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And so the field and the cave and it were deeded to Abram by the Hittites as a burial site. Now, there's a whole lot in here. Um, I, I'll try to deal with it in somewhat of a systematic fashion. Um, so, Ephraim says, go, just go bury your dad. You know, it's compassion. He says, what? but Abraham insists on paying the full price. So, you get the Ephraim speaking, probably saying, listen, don't worry about it. It's worth 400 you know, if you insist on paying, but don't worry, just bury your daddy. It's a very compassionate um, story here, okay, among the Hittites. Now, who were the Hittites? This is, this is an important thing. So the Hittites were the rulers of the land here. This comes through very clearly in this passage, um, that, that the land was, the Hittites were the predominant peoples of this group. Um, and the reason I, I, I say this in some of the background information I, I said a bit earlier is that um, so in the mid 18 or early 1800s, uh, liberal theologians uh, uh, were doing their archaeology. The archaeology had been going on there for well over 100 years, biblical archaeology, modern archaeology. And they had come to the point where they, they, uh, they were saying they didn't find any evidence for the Hittites. And so, so there was actually text from among the leading scholars at that time that said, um, if it, that said, we can be pretty sure that there were never any group of people, the Hittites, that are mentioned in Genesis. The Genesis, in, in about that time, the theory came up that Genesis was really 
not written at the time of Moses, but it was really written about when they were in the captivity about 500 BC instead of 2000 BC. And so they, 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 the story came up and they said, we can prove that because of this. And, uh, and, and uh, the Bible was being discredited. And so until about, I think it was 1837 or 1839, if you want to look up, you can just Google Hittites and Hittites is a Wikipedia article and talks about all this. Um, in, in 1837, 1839, all of a sudden they unearthed, started unearthing evidence of the Hittites. Okay? And by the end of the 1800s, uh, they said that the Hittite empire was, was larger than anything Israel ever had. And it was worthy of comparison with the upper kingdom of Egypt. In other words, it was one of the superpowers at the time. Okay. And the reason I say this is because they were confident that there were no Hittites here. The, 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 uh, the, and, and yet the, the place was swarming with Hittites. There were Hittites all over the place. In fact, the article on the Hittites, one of the things it says is that the, the, um, the Egyptians, everyone knows the Egyptians were the superpower at the time, that the, the first known peace treaty archaeologically in history in the world was between the Hittites and the Egyptians. And they founded the city of Armana, and it basically said there was a truce between these, the, the two things. And it's important to know because it was the first time archaeologically, evidentially, that they found a, a treaty that said one nation was not at war with another nation. In other words, established times of a peace. And so they found that in Armana and in, Armana in uh, like 1830-something, whatever. And But again, we can confidently state that there were no Hittites at this time. It's like, how can you, how can you, you know, but again, you need to understand people want to be recognized. They want their achievements to be known. And if you get a PhD, you actually have to get new knowledge. So when you do your dissertation, the dissertation has to be new knowledge. That's a requirement for a PhD. And so, so, um, so if you're an archaeology or biblical, biblical theology, you have to come up with a new idea, okay? So there's lots of new ideas floating out there. And that's not to say they're not true. They could be true. And there is knowledge. That's the whole point of it. But just because someone says it could be this way does not mean it is this way. And again, it's hard to prove a negative. To say, but, but, uh, but again, there's, a, there's an overweening pride among professionals, okay? And sometimes it says, we can confidently assert that there were no such tribe as the Hittites in there. And yet, 50 years later, you realize that they were so big, they, they literally they ruled the land. They dwarfed it. And not only were they the rulers of Israel, they ruled most of Turkey, too. And their kingdom compared to Egypt and the Assyrian uh, Empire. Uh, and, and yet, we didn't know they existed. Therefore, they didn't exist. Well, that's not the same thing. Um, and I say that again because the Bible purports to be historical. And it purports these stories in here have import and that they're true. And because they're true, um, and we see how, when we see how God acts in them, we understand what God means and what God, how God acts. When, when, when we see how people act, this is how people act, okay? And all the things that are done in the Bible aren't good, okay? We see what happened with Lot. He did lots of horrible stuff, okay? And yet, and, and yet, the Bible talks about how God dealt with the situation. Um, and, and, and Noah, Noah was a righteous man, and yet Noah got drunk, okay? Um, and so, and it caused a curse to come upon his grandchildren. And, and so, we see the events and the fallout on this. Not that they're right, but that we can learn from them, 
10. So we have that in here. He buries Sarah. Uh, and now Abraham was um, chapter 24. Abraham was very old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. And again, take this, just say this. Sometimes we don't enjoy all our blessings. The Lord had blessed him. Now, he had had problems. He had had difficulties. He had problems having a child. He had problems having a child by his handmaiden instead of his wife. Uh, he had problems with Lot. He had problems with when he was afraid to um, uh, say that Sarah was his wife. Um, he, there were lot, he had lots of issues, okay? And yet, God had blessed him in every way. God really had blessed him. He'd given him great wealth and riches. He'd given him the son. He'd given him family. Um, he'd given him respect among the, the, the rulers of the nation he was in. And um, it's a, so it's, I say that because I think um, we live in a very prosperous age. And I'm not saying everyone is prosperous. And, and, and there might be some people saying, right, but if you only knew the problems I had now. And I understand that. And there are really big problems. And I'm not saying I have the biggest problems at all. Okay. Um, but what I am saying is that a lot of times we don't realize how much we have. We focus on what we don't have. And um, I'm thankful. I'm thankful the country is, it, it has been in a turmoil and there's COVID raging. In fact, one of my um, close relatives passed away in the hospital uh, just yesterday and his wife was not able to see him. Um, and so there are tragic and hurtful and horrible things happening. And yet we do live in a prosperous nation. We do live in a country that has been blessed in many ways by God. That there are, are far less diseases overall here than in, in many other places. And people live longer and healthier and longer lives. And, uh, and you say, well, th th that's not true. There's Europe too. And, but what I'm saying, we've all inherited um, the Judeo-Christian traditions. Even places that don't aren't traditionally Christian have espoused those beliefs and stuff. And so there's incredible blessings in a lot of things. So we, they, as, as the God has blessed us with, and God makes his son to rise on the good and the evil. And so um, I think sometimes we just don't stop sometimes and think, God, thank you. Thank you for what you've given us. And this is a good time to do that. The Lord had blessed Abraham every way. And he said to his chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all he had, who was probably Eleazar, that, that's, that was his, uh, his chief servant uh, earlier, um, put your hand under my thigh, which is a way to, uh, they would swear in those days. And they would say that, that would be accurate and uh, accurate of that time period. Uh, I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, um, that you will not get a wife from my, for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living. But you will go off, go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife from my son Isaac. Now, this is something that Abraham lives at peace with his neighbors, and yet he's separate from his neighbors. And his neighbors understand that he's separate from them, and they respect that. I Actually, when we had breakfast today, we were praying, and the waitress um, paused a bit while we were praying until she gave us coffee. And she said, uh, and we said, oh, sorry. She says, oh, no, no, my grandmother would kill me if I had, you know, give her a pour your coffee while you're praying and stuff like that. And so there's a respect there, okay? There's a, there's a difference of, 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 of belief, but there's respect. And Abram enjoyed that. So, um, so, but he believed differently, and he did not want 
his son to marry among the Canaanites because the Canaanites were already starting to practice things that weren't good. Uh, and, and so uh, there was shrine prostitution. We know that. There, uh, I think offering of, of, of uh, children to Moloch um, it does not seem to be at this time period. It was certainly several hundred years later when the Israelites entered the land, but it was there. And so um, um, the servant asked him, um, what is the, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send an angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back from there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master, Abraham, and swore an oath to him uh, concerning this matter. <coughs> so um, uh, here we, we see, um, you know, again, a, a faithful, loving servant going off in there. But he has a question, you know, what if, what if, um, the woman won't come back. Do you want me to take your son? He says, no, God will send an angel um, for, for you. He says, but, but if, she do, if you do find the woman and she won't come back, you're released from your vow. And so um, I, I, this is an issue. So sometimes there's a, um, we, we say that if you really trust God, you won't allow that, that other things can happen. In other words, you know, it, sometimes it's called a name and claim it type, type theology. Um, so Abraham faith, had faith that God was going to send an angel ahead of him. But, but the servant was asking for direction. And so Abraham says, but if the woman won't come back, then, then do this. And so he's, he's saying, I am sure God is going to send an angel ahead of him. I'm sure that this is going to happen. But, if, but I don't know what God's going to do. If she won't come back, you're released from your vow. Now, he believes that God's going to act and bring someone back, but He's, he's, he's making the provision to his servant. And some, sometimes we say, I'm, I, in fact, I, I remember I was at a church once where the pastor said, if God doesn't do this, we're going to crash. And we're just, it's just going to be, there's no, there's no plan B. And the church crashed, it literally crashed, because he, he, he said, we're going to do this. And it's not, and so, and, and all of a sudden it crashed. And it was years, I mean, literally years before the church was able to recover because the pastor said, there is no plan B. I'm not going to think about it. If I thought about it, that would be a sign of not having faith. That's not, that's, that's a sign of, of arrogance, okay? That's a sign of trying to make God do something. That's what it was. We, he compared, we're climbing Mount Everest and we'll die in the trying is what he said. You know, we, we, God has called us to this and he hadn't. Um, and it crashed, and it was, it was very, very bad. We need to be careful about that in our own lives too. You cannot make God do something. You cannot put God in a position where He'll, you know, put shame upon God if if this doesn't happen. You know, sometimes God just says, "Okay, do what you're going to do." Uh, you know, yeah, you can't make God do what He's not going to do. So, uh, so, so I just anyway, I I, I will say this. Be careful about arrogance. Be careful about presumption. And yet, have faith. And yet, stake what you need. You know, he's staking his whole thing on that you'll, 
God will provide a son for me. But he also says, but if it doesn't happen, there are, I, I've got to trust that God has taken care of it still. Okay. Um, the servant um, took 10 of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naram and made his way to the town of Nahor. And he had camels kneel down near the well outside the town. And it was towards evening, the, uh, the time for women to go out and draw water. Now, I'm going to stop here to go on a little one more, one more rabbit trail here. Okay. I went with the Hittites. Okay. So if you Google camels in Genesis, okay, you'll come up with time articles, time magazines and archaeologists saying there were no camels in, in, the, in this time period. Um, and the evidence they have is they haven't found any camel remains there. Okay. Um, although there, if you look at all the archaeology, there is evidence that there were camels there at that time, but they haven't found the remains there, and there's other stuff going back. And but but this is what I'm saying. So they've said this is another proof that Genesis was written at the time of the captivity. Well, Bill, what difference does that make? Well, because if it was written back at the time of the captivity, after Israel had had a, 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 a thousand years of history, and then had fallen into uh, abandoning its God, and then being carried into captivity, if that happened, then then, then this is an edited story to teach what's trying, they're trying. This is the, the priest writing the nice stories to the people who obey things. Okay, so there is, there is a, a problem here uh, with this. And, and all I have to say is that, uh, and they put camels in because at the time of the captivity, there were camels, but there weren't, there's no evidence for camels. Now, that's a really light argument to base something like this on. And, and when I'm saying, it's, it's like this, and it, this is one of the major things that put them out there, okay? The Hittites were the other major. The Hittites were a huge major thing that made them relocated to that time. And I'm saying the evidence is not good that this is not an historical document written at this time. But you know what? There are people that, that have a vested interest in trying to disprove things to show that they're honest, straightforward scholars instead of saying the honest, straightforward scholar would say it appears that they're more camels there, and this is a difficult thing for the story in Genesis, instead of obviously Genesis was written at a later time, because that's what's happening there. Um, I will go into one more quick rabbit trail about, about the veracity of the Old Testament, um, because it, it comes under attack a lot, and if you can't believe the Word of God, then what happens is you get a collection of stories, and you can choose what to believe, okay? So currently today, uh, it, it, uh, there are a lot of moral practices that the Bible condemns, okay? And, and we say, well, that was added later, or I just don't believe that. And you don't get to pick and choose what's in Scripture, okay? That's, that's part of the thing. I, I mean, actually, you do. You, you, God, this is the truth. God has given us a mind and a brain, and he's made us morally responsible. So if you don't want to believe certain parts, you don't have to believe certain parts. But just because you don't believe it doesn't make it untrue, okay? And there's an account that needs to be given to what the God, you know, you know. Sometimes we're like, well, God, why is this happening to me? And it's like, well, because of this, you know. And we're like, why? Because of this. Like, but why? And like because of this. And we don't, we don't want to, uh, you know. I, I, I certainly he could not want to take that from my life. It's so important. It's the right thing. Is the but he says it's not the right thing. And so the issue comes back to a faith thing. 
So the last thing I will say is this. Um, the earliest manuscript of the Old Testament, the earliest manuscript of the Old Testament um, was the Leningrad Codex. Um, and that, this was in the early, uh, early 20th century. The latest, and it was written uh, around the 10th century, about 950. Okay, that, that was when it was copied over. So the old, oldest copy of, of the Torah was, was 950 AD, okay? And everyone was saying that all the passages about the suffering servant and Jesus and everything else were inserted after uh, the time of, of uh, you know, uh, uh, time of Christ. And so they snuck in there and that was a corrupted text and the Bible didn't actually have all this stuff and, uh, and it was all written later and inserted in this and that until in the mid-1950s, um, uh, actually, 1948, I believe it is. Some shepherd was out throwing stones, and a stone went down into a, uh, a cave and broke a clay pot, and he heard it, and he went down there, and he found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls revolutionized what we thought. They were by the Essenes, uh, which was a sect that lived out in the desert and had a very uh, 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 um, Spartan lifestyle. And, uh, and they found all their libraries, okay? Uh, not all their libraries, but they found a lot of the scrolls in there. And in that, in that um, uh, treasure trove of every book of the Old Testament, I think scraps of every book at least, uh, and, and complete manuscripts of many of them, was a complete uh, one full scroll of Isaiah. And Isaiah, you know, is the longest book there, uh, except from Psalms, because of Psalm 119. But, but Isaiah is the longest continuous um, Story. And they had one entire scroll of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. And they compared that with what they had in 950 AD. And it was almost letter perfect, word perfect. There was no major discrepancies at all. That is a huge, long document. And for someone to have copied it over and over and over again, uh, because scrolls wear out when they're being used, that thing was probably copied a dozen times before it got uh, Maybe more. Because um, it was highly revered. They didn't you just you, but, but anyway, um, for it to be that accurate is to show that there was nothing added in there at all. There's no doubt, zero doubt, that anything was added to Isaiah from that time period. And so, but they were sure that it wasn't any, yeah. So, this is what I'm saying. Be very careful when people tell you we're sure about this. Science is a little better in some ways. Sometimes science says, um, we don't know everything. Um, our things are changing. But I'm telling you this, whatever science says, they're sure of at that time. And if you don't believe it, then you're wrong. I often say that you're an idiot. You don't believe this, you're an idiot. Okay, but then 10 years later, when they realize something else is true, that you don't believe that, but, but what you believe then makes you an idiot. You know, it's like, yeah, but they say, well, well, we didn't know. And that's the whole point is science trying to know. But then when you're at a certain point, you say you do know and you have to believe it or you're an idiot. And so be very careful about people making, calling you basically dumb or Neanderthal or anything else because you don't believe what they believe at the current time because their viewpoints change, okay, like that. So, um, and, and so scripture comes in and out of vogue because of that, because when people believe what scripture believes, then you're smart, you know, and when you don't believe your beliefs are departing from scripture, which they are right now in a massive way, then all of a sudden you're an idiot to believe what scripture believes. And that's not true. Okay? Um, use your eyes. Use your eyes. And, and don't be swayed by people just because they call you names on 
Christians. Um, so uh, now let's get back to this. Verse 12, uh, as he, the camels kneeled down um, near the well outside the town, it was towards evening, the time when the women go out to draw water. And in verse 12, then he prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be uh, that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I might have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Then let her, let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this you will know that uh, you have shown uh, kindness to my master. Um, and before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out of the jar with her, uh, with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, um, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. And the girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had ever laid with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up again. Uh, the servants hurried to meet her and said, please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar from her hands to give him a drink. And after she'd given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels, too, until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw more water and drew close enough for all his uh, and drew enough for all his camels. And without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. Now, uh, we're going to stop there. And that's and uh, I'm not sure exactly where I am on this one. Um, OK. Um, just for the next section. So he's praying, and this girl comes out, uh, and, and the women are coming out, and they carry uh, stone jars, generally. It could be wooden, but wood is precious out there. It's not a lot, and metal is very precious. And so it's probably a stone jar. It weighs a lot, is what I'm saying. And they go, she's going out there to draw water for her family and walk it back. And you know, from um, in many um, developing countries, people have to walk a long ways to get water and, and such. This was a town water supply, so they just went out there and got it. And she picked it up, and she and he said, can I have some water? Uh, and and uh, he does not ask about his camels, okay? He can, can I have some water? She, yes, and she lowers the thing. Drink, and, I'll, and then I'll draw for your camels, too. Now, um, again, in the interest of full disclosure and uh, self-interest, there could have been some self-interest here, too, because 10 camels appearing out of nowhere. Um, uh, camels are sort of like the... Um, um, they're called the, the ships of the desert, you know, and, and so so trade went through camels. And that's why I'm, I, it's very hard for me to believe there weren't some camels at this time because there was a lot of trade going in through these areas. So so um, so she, she says, drink, uh, I'll give drinks to your camels. The reason I'm saying this is camels drink a lot of water. The reason camels are so good is because a lot of this this trade route is very dry. And so uh, they need to uh, be able to go long distances. So she's, she's drawing water for 10 camels. She's probably there for an hour, two hours, drawing water for this guy. It's not a small thing. Now, she might have been doing it because she was very interested in, you know, a new, new someone new came in and, you know, they, they didn't have TV and a bunch of other things. This is a big event type thing. Someone appearing there. It could have been that. But I don't, that, that's not the feel of this passage. The feel of this passage is a girl who's a servant, who has a servant heart, and who's willing to serve. And, and just, here, I'll get you, I'm happy to give you, I'll help you out here, water. And I'll get your camel's water, too. So so it's really, again, a really providential, beautiful thing. So, again, he did not ask for water for his camels, okay? Um, 
uh, he just said, uh, please give me a little water from your jar. That's all he asked for. But his prayer was, uh, say, drink, and I'll give water to your camel. So he didn't ask for that, but she said that. And so he sees this as an answer to prayer. Okay? So verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring, weighing uh, a becca, about a fifth of an ounce of shil- uh, silver, um, a gold, excuse me, um, and two gold bracelets weighing 10 shekels, which is uh, about four ounces, 110 grams, which would be about $5,000 worth of bracelet at this time. And um, she asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for your father's house for us to spend the night? So so she might have thought of that as payment, maybe not, or maybe just as a gift. I don't know anything, but this is extremely generous of him to do, have done something like that. Uh, obviously a very wealthy man. And she answered, him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of strong fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. Uh, and then the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord saying, praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey up to the house of my master's relative. So God, he recognizes that it's a blessing to him too. To, to uh, the that God is showing him because he loves Abraham. This servant loves Abraham, um, and um, and that God has answered his prayer. And so the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebecca had a brother named Laban, and he hurried out to the man of the spring. And as soon as, as soon as he had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm, and had heard Rebecca tell what the man had said to her, he went out and found him standing to the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord. Why are you standing out there? I have prepared the house and the place for your camels. So now you get the shyster, okay? So I think Rebecca's <coughs> was, um, was just love and God's kindness. This you get this guy, it says, as soon as he's seen this, and see, come, I have prepared for you. I have prepared this for you, you know, come. And this comes into play. Uh, it comes into play later because Laban has a couple daughters that Jacob winds up. So, so we see the beginning of, of uh, entrepreneur Laban uh, getting out there and, and starting things out. Uh, so the man went to the house and the camels were unloaded and strong fodder were brought for the camels and water for them and his, and his men to wash their feet. And food was set before him, but, but he said, I will not eat until you... You told us um, what you have, to, what I have, until I have told you what I have to say. Then tell us, um, they said, or Laban said, we're not sure, but so they, they said it. <coughs> so he said, I am Abram's servant. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly, and he has become wealthy. He has given him sheep, cattle, silver, and gold, men servants and maid servants, and camels and donkeys. My master's wife, Sarah, has borne him in his old him a son in her old age and has given him everything he owns <coughs> and my master has made me swear an oath and said you must not get a wife for your son from the daughters of the canaanites in whom land i in whose land i live but go to my father's family and to my own clan and get a wife for my son and then i asked my master what if the woman will not come back with me and he replied the lord before whom i have walked will send an angel with you to make your journey a success so you can get a wife from my son from my own clan or from my father's family. Then what what then when you go to my clan, you will be released from my oath, even if they refuse to give her to you. You will be released from my oath. 
And when I came to the spring, okay, let me start right there. So the account he says here is a little different from Abraham's account. So what I'm, what I, I think there, there's no um, dissonance there. Okay, but but they're not exactly the same words, and that's because this is an oral retelling. It's also because this is a paraphrase of the conversation. Of all the essential stuff is there, but but he also in this one says, "Go to my clan." Okay. He also says here, I, I, I will um, um, release you uh, from my oath, even if they refuse to give her to you. And not, not that she won't go back, but they refuse to give her to you. So, but it's all, again, consistent with the story. And you don't say, you, you know, when someone's writing this, you say, yeah, this, this is all, you don't say, oh, he's lying. The servant didn't ever say this because we know the other conversation. You say, okay, that's, that's the gist of the conversation. And it was, He's relating it to them. Um, when I came to the spring today, I said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you will, please grant success on the journey for which I have come. See, I am standing beside his, this spring. If a maiden comes out to draw water and I say to her, please let me drink a little water from your jar. And if she says to me, drink, and I'll draw water for your camels too, let her be the one the Lord has chosen to be my master's son. So in a sense, he sends out the what we call a fleece now too. Give me a sign that I just asked for water, but she not only watered, gives me water, but she waters my camels. Um, and before I finished praying in my heart, Rebecca came out with it, with her jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water. And, and I said to her, please give me a drink. And by the way, when it says they went down to the spring, these were depressions generally, they walked down. It was like a open well where the water sprang up and they would go down and get that, but just side note. Um, before I finished praying in my heart, Rebecca came out with the jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water, and I said to her, please give me a drink. And she quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I'll water your camels too. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. And I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor, whom Milcah bore him. And then I put a ring in her nose and bracelets on her arms, and I bowed down, and I worshiped the Lord. Beautiful image there that he's just saying, Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for this journey that you've, you've blessed me, you've answered the prayer. Uh, and I praise the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, and he led, who had led me on the right road to get my granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you will show me kindness to my master, tell me, and if not, um, tell me, so that I may know which way to turn. And Laban and Bethel answered, This is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebecca. Take her and go. And let uh, let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. And so, Rebecca's father, Bethuel, uh, Bethuel, and um, Laban, his brother. Uh, so Laban. So you know where Laban is on all this? Is he uh, sort of getting to be the head of the household, or is he just chiming in with Bethuel? But it comes in later in the story. Again, he is the head of the household at that later time uh, with Jacob, um, and. Uh, uh, and they say, we can't say nothing. So there's a very strong, there is some kind of God sense, okay, of who God is in this, this clan and family. I don't know exactly where they are. And they, we know uh, from the encounter with Jacob that they are worshiping idols and other gods too at the time. And yet there seems to be an understanding of a God, uh, an uh, omnipotent God in here. Uh, and this is God, what can we do? Um, and uh, when Abram's servant heard, what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. 
He also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. Uh, and then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent their night there. So, it, it, so he did not give gifts to the father. I think that might be just because uh, traditionally it's the wife that brings the dowry, not the husband. But these were just gifts. And so he gave this to the father because he was not paying for the bride. These were just gifts of the heart. Uh, but I'm sure Laban remember those gifts uh, for many years later uh, when it comes up again in a few chapters, a few chapters down the road. Um, when they got up the next morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. So she spent the night there, okay? But the brother and her mother replied, let the girl remain with us 10 days or so, and then you may go. And, and, and that's not an unreasonable request at all, okay? The, the chances of them ever seeing her again are very low. So, so 10 days to say goodbye to her family that she might never see again, that's not an unreasonable request. Um, but, um, uh, but he said to them, the, the servant, do not detain me now that, I, now that the Lord has granted success to my journey. Send me on my way that I might go to be to uh, my master. And then they said, let's call the girl and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Uh, and then they sent their sister Rebecca on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands and may your offspring possess the gates of the enemy. So they send her with a blessing. Um, and then Rebecca and her maids got ready and mounted their camels and went back to the man. So, so there's two reasons he brought camels, by the way. One of the reasons he brought camels is that, um, that uh, he had lots of gifts to give. And the other one was to, have, to bring all the stuff back with her. So, so Rebecca came back with some maids and uh, lots of her possessions. Um, and uh, they mounted the camels and went back. So now Isaac came to her from Bethlehem Roy, where he was living in the Negev, the southern portion. Um, of the uh, desert. And he went out to the field one evening to meditate. And he looked up, he saw camels approaching. And Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. And she got down from her camel and asked the servant, who is the man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of her mother, Sarah, and he married Rebecca. And so she became his wife. And loved her, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And so, again, you see a very beautiful story here um, of Rebecca coming in and, and comforting Isaac at this time. Uh, so, we are going to talk a little bit more uh, in the next section about uh, Isaac, but it's, the, the focus of the story is going to move off of Isaac into Jacob and Esau very quickly. Um, but there is a, a little bit more to tell on Isaac. And, and um, I, w I will uh, sort of, um, actually, I'll leave that for next time. Because it's not a, it's, it's another one of those rabbit trails. And that's not how I want to end this. Um, I want us to see God provides. God provides for families through families. Okay. And that will come up next time too. Um, but not just that, but God provides. God provides answers to prayers. It's not always the way you want it to be, um, but sometimes it is. And here, here you get this answer, um, a beautiful answer that God loves. And God does delight in our prayers. And God does delight in our faith in him. And so I, you know, I shared earlier about the situation with the church. God does really delight in us stepping out in faith.
faith. Okay, it's presumption that he does not want. It's it's demanding that God does do a certain way. God, God, I won't say God will rebel against that because God is not moved by our things. God does what God does. But you will beat yourself on a rock if you think you can manipulate God into making something happen. Um, on the other hand, if you wait for God in his perfect timing, then he will bring these things to pass and there will be blessing. And so um, the story here is trust God. Trust God that he's working, even at a distance, even through time, even through people that do or do not acknowledge him, that God is always there and he is always working for your good because he loves you. And sometimes for your good means hurting you or punishing you because he wants you to turn back to him. But that is not because he doesn't love you. It's because he wants you with him. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you love us and care for us. We thank you that you um, you never leave us alone. Um, and I think of all the I think the sorrow that my um, my cousin has now with her husband, and I just think, God, why? And yet, I know that you have something there, and I just pray that you would comfort her now and then I, and the family. And I pray for the many other people caught up in the situations that are now with this COVID where they don't get to see their loved ones and pass away, that, that you would draw close to them, that you would love them and care for them, that you would answer prayers um, sovereignly. Uh, and yet we beseech you, Lord, that your mercy might be upon us, that you might um, uh, grant us refreshment, that you might grant us time with our, our, our family, our friends and relatives, and that you would spare this country, this world, the ravages of this, uh, this um, virus that is, is uh, tearing through us now. And, um, and through our lives, no matter what, Lord, we pray we trust in you and that you teach us to love you more and more and, and rely on you for everything. We pray in your name, Jesus.